Well, everybody, welcome to Exponential Wisdom. I'm Peter Diamandis here with my dear friend, my coach, Dan Sullivan. Dan, a pleasure to see you, buddy. On this episode, I'd like to talk about a really hard question for entrepreneurs, and it's one I've had to face multiple times in my career, which is, when do you kill a startup? When do you kill a company? When do you give up on mm-hmm. on something that you've raised money for, you've invested time in, and it's an emotional equivalent to when you give up on a marriage in some case? Yeah. Well, it's a nice correspondence that you're making there because the emotions involved in a failing company that you've created, you've poured your passion into, is very, very similar to a relationship that just didn't work. You know, I've gone through that. As a matter of fact, Peter, on August 15th, 1978, I was both bankrupt and divorced on the same day. (laughs) Talk about efficiency. (laughs) Yeah, but I actually arranged the divorce so it could be in the morning so I could keep my credit card to kind of celebrate a little bit at lunchtime before I had to handle in my 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 credit card. Yeah, but in those cases, it wasn't me giving up on anything. It was somebody else in the market actually giving up on me. So to a certain extent, the answer, when do you give up on a company, is when, to a certain extent, you have signs that the marketplace has given up on you and that the value creation proposition that you thought that the marketplace was going to go for, the marketplace didn't go for it, or you put an enormous amount of investment into something before you actually test it in the marketplace. Okay, and you know people, you know, they get an idea and they'll do like a Hollywood production before they actually go off and talk to an actual tech writer. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, to actually do it. And then they guessed wrong. They just totally guessed wrong and they put all this investment before they do it. So my feeling is, the way I look at it, because I've had failure, like all of us have had, is that I try to get to the first check writer reality as fast as I can with any new idea I've got. And even if it's the back of a napkin and I've drawn a diagram, I can talk to a potential check writer and I said, would this be valuable, this idea valuable enough to you that you would actually write a check? And they said, well, this is kind of interesting, but you know, this doesn't work and this doesn't work and this doesn't work. But if you change those things, come back, I'd give you a check for it. Greatest research in the world. So my number one rule to prevent having to give up on a check is only check against check writers. Check writers are the only people who can tell you whether a company's any good or not. I could not agree with you more. We have this sense of optimism as entrepreneurs. Yes. Right. Tremendous optimism. We fall in love with our ideas. And and not all ideas are great ideas. And by the way, the other uh-huh. thing is the idea is the easy part. <laughs> you know, if thousands of ideas. It's actually turning it into a real business yeah. that is the most difficult part. The hard part, yeah. And so I've had, you know, I'm on my 22nd or 23rd company, and I've had a number of amazing learning failures in there that either failed miserably or they became some walking dead and I had to kill them because at a point at which your time and your emotional energy is worth far more. Let me unpack what you said a little bit ago because it's so important. We fall in love with our ideas. We have a big idea. We go out. We might get a first check writer. Our first check writer might be ourselves or our parents or our best friend or so. And then you spend a year 
thinking about the idea, working on the idea, building the idea, and then the first time that you show it to the marketplace, immediate there's a failure, mm-hmm. which had you, the concept is an MVP, a minimally viable product, had you created an MVP early on yeah. and tested it, mm-hmm. you would have learned that there was a fatal flaw in your idea. So there's a great saying that if you're not embarrassed by the first version of your idea, you've launched it too late. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing, you know, that writes books and, you know, it gives speeches. But in fact, entrepreneurs are not complete risk takers. You try to keep your failures smaller and quicker. It's a series of failures that actually builds a success. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I talk about the most successful companies in the world are data-driven experimentalist companies, right? Where you're driven by data and you're running experiments. And by the way, experiments that don't fail, in other words, is you need to be failing to learn in the process. But small failures that don't kill you and give you corrections along the way. You said something interesting. The times I failed have been in part where I had a clear vision of what I wanted to do. And two things caused me failure. One was I was super optimistic and I was not realistic about how much money or how much time or how difficult something was going to be. And when I got into it, Mm -hmm. it was like, shit, this is not easy. And I would need to start with 10 times as much money. Peter, I have to tell you, entrepreneurs love horror stories. Could you tell the horror story of your zero gravity company? Oh, I'm happy to. And tell how close to the cliff you were before it. Okay, sure. So here's an example. May of 1993, I'm trying to get myself on a zero G airplane. NASA has been flying parabolic flights for 30 years. I'm begging, I'm pleading, I'm volunteering. Can you just describe what that is? So zero-G is you take an airplane, a commercial large aircraft, and you fly it in this parabolic arc. You you start off at 23,000 feet, you pull up at a 50-degree angle of attack, sort of your nose pointing up towards the sky, and then you push over the top in this giant parabola. As you go over the top, you're weightless inside the airplane for about 30 seconds, and it's true weightlessness. You're not faking it, and it's how... NASA trained their astronauts and how you'd run experiments and weightlessness before you'd fly up to the orbit. When you're in orbit, you're in a continuous weightless loop around the Earth. But when you're in a zero-G airplane, you're in a small arc of a weightlessness for 30 seconds. Anyway, I wanted to do this. I said, listen, I'll be a lab rat, whatever it is. No, 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 no. I said, screw it. You know, as an entrepreneur should, if I want to do it so much, other people are going to want to do it, and I'm just going to start a business. So I went out and raised $500,000, thinking this was going to be a piece of cake, got it from a great adventurer, Mike McDowell. And then I went and I pitched the FAA on my plan. And the FAA lawyer said, uh, you want to do what? Take people out of their seatbelts, do this aerobatic maneuvers in the sky and people floating around the cabin? You're insane. And I was like, that's a surprise. NASA's been doing it for 30 years. Why can't I? He said, because the federal aviation regulations don't allow you to do that. You have to wear parachutes on board the airplane. And it's just, long story short, I spent a half million dollars. I took no salary. Byron Lichtenberg, Ray Cronice, my co-founders, we just pinched every penny and we used it on lawyers and engineers. Long story short, we finally got FAA approval. Let's see, May 93. We got FAA approval in 
September of 2004, 11 years later, it's an 11-year startup of insanity. <laughs> and the only way we got FAA approval was because I ended up going to the top of the FAA, Marion Blakey, who said, everyone was going to cover your ass. No one would take the risk. And she said, because I was taking people to Russia to go and fly in their zero-g airplane. And she said, okay, fine. We will support you to do this. And they did. So we got our first contract. And our first contract was from Richard Branson's company that was shooting the television show called Rebel Billionaire. It was sort of a version of The Apprentice, but instead of the Donald, it was Richard Branson doing crazy stuff. And we got a contract to fly four flights. And we basically, the airplane was almost ready for our first flight, but then we couldn't get it working properly, get the pressurization system and so forth. So on the first day, this is a Wednesday, I was to do two flights on Wednesday, one flight on Thursday, two flights on Friday for the filming crew. On Wednesday, I said, guys, it's almost ready. Can we do two flights tomorrow? Okay. Now, that afternoon, it wasn't ready. The next morning, it wasn't ready. Thursday afternoon, it wasn't ready. And I am panicking because if I don't pull off these flights, we would have to give the money back to the production company. We were bankrupt before our first flight ever got off the ground. It is Friday morning, and I am literally, I haven't slept, I haven't eaten. There is a part now that I have to find someplace in the country. I order like three different, I sent one team in a car driving from wherever we were, like through the night, 24 hours. I sent another person to another place on an airplane to go and pick up this part, and their part's coming in FedEx, and literally uh, with the production company saying, please, please, we will get the flight off today. And they said, okay, listen, here's the deal. If you get off one flight, so we get one good video shot of everybody, we'll be okay. Now, it is Friday afternoon, the parts are coming in, and we have a restriction that we can only fly during daylight because of daytime VFR flight restriction. And the sun is literally setting. The parts are <laughs> arriving, and they're in the airplane getting it fixed, and this is like, I don't know, this is September, you know, sunset is like about 7 p.m. And around 7.30, the sun is literally going over the horizon. I'm going, oh, can I say this? We're fucked. You know, we're screwed. And it's like, it's like, oh, my God. And the airplane finally is working. And I turn to the pilots and I'm going, guys, here's the deal. We either make this flight happen now or we're out of business before our very first flight. And the pilot looked, he says, Looks like daylight to me. And we took off, <laughs> made the flight. It was great. We got to keep the contract and talk about just in time. It was insane. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Still, the emotion still floods and the anxiety levels of it. Yeah. I just want the whole world listening to know that this is Peter Diamandis' version of the real world. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, this is just normal life in Peter's real world. Zero-G is still <laughs> operational today. We flew Stephen Hawking, which is a whole other story. The way yeah. we've flown thousands of people uh, over the course of now 15 years. It's amazing. Yeah, more than 100 flights, I think. How many flights? Oh, well, we have we have uh, probably well over 500 flights that we've done. 500 flights. Yeah, probably like four or 5,000 people we've flown to zero-G. Yeah. It's fun. So looking back, if you do a let's reverse engineer this, was there any time during that period where it would have been really intelligent for you to kill that company? Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, honestly, the five years of energy, and had I instead spent those five years just starting an internet company in the mid-90s, <laughs> I would have bought a fleet of 727s and a couple of... Yeah, take the 500,000 and put it in, you know, the hot stock Cisco yeah. or whatever it is. If you had taken five... Sure, Amazon. Uh, Amazon, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was honestly, it was passion-driven. I was not doing this for the money. It was the game. Yeah of I'm going to make this work. I remember going to the FA lawyers and saying to them, Strain I, I am not giving up. You're going to be out of a job or retired before I give up. I actually pitched the idea of creating the religion of Zog, Zero-G, in which it was <laughs> your religious right to fly on a Zero-G airplane where you did your prayer. <laughs> Call it out-of-the-box thinking. Wow. Oh, my God. It was crazy. Yeah. And it was really driven by the passion, and I remained pure to the vision. There are other times where I was driven by a passion, but yeah. the business we were building, like the launch vehicle business at a company, we were trying to launch uh, 100 pounds, 50 kilograms to orbit for a million dollars. And this is back in the 89, 90, 91. And I ended up, the only contract we could get was a defense Air Force SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative contract, which was not anything that any of us wanted, but it was the only contract we could win. And it drove us to redesign and re-engineer. And we, instead of a million-dollar launch vehicle, it was a $12, $14 million launch vehicle at the end. And our vision got perverted. We ended up selling the company, never went anyplace. But that was a lesson to me of while we were following the market, it was not the vision true in our hearts. And I didn't want to ever do that again. Yeah. Peter, let's say there's still a part of Peter that will do something like that again in the future. Yeah. And there's a part that's really learned from all these experiences. So what are the three pieces of wisdom that you now have when you approach any new company start that you're checking off the dials much more quickly do we have a live one here, or does this one have to die an early death? Yeah, so I think there is fundamentally the question of how much capital are you starting with, and how quickly can you get to revenue? The most successful companies I've started are the ones that were able to begin early on with revenue. Mm -hmm. It was not a invest, 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 and hope to get to revenue. It's like there was a version... 0.1, which we could launch, get revenue, learn from it, and then create the next iteration and the next iteration, the next iteration. And instead of starting these companies that had long investment periods without actual revenue and actual learning. So I'm always looking for how do you create revenue on day one? How do you become profitable even on day one? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you did that in coach yeah. for sure. Yeah. The thing that I do is, because mine are all intellectual products, so there's very little expense in the actual creation of my products. But what I do is I give myself, from the moment I announce the new product, I've got to be in a profitable position within 90 days. Wow, 90 days, that's amazing. Yeah. Therefore, I got a really, really test on early check writers. And I said, if I created this new program, so I just created one last April, which is called the Game Changer. And in the first 90 days of announcing to get to it, I had more money in than the first three years of our company back in 1989, 1990. 
My whole thing, I'm an expert on what my check writers are looking for next, and I use their language, actually, to tell them what the product is, because they've already given me the language of the next thing they're looking, and I take the language and I build it right into my model of my presentation when I go back out to them. So when would you kill a company, Dan? I think the big thing is that, you know, I really test end of workshops. I test, and what is the excitement level and what is the disappointment level? And if I go along two quarters, three quarters in a row, it's disappointing, and there isn't some magic transformation I can make to it. I'll can it by the end of the first year because I'm getting demoralized, Yeah. okay? And I can't get demoralized. The number one thing in my company that always has to be excited is me. So that's the thing. If you're losing interest and it's become kind of like an obligation, you obligated yourself to do something, that's the time to kill it. Love it. Never grow your company into the future out of some obligation or a sense of duty if you're demoralized, everybody around you is going to be demoralized. Let me share some thoughts bringing sort of the exponential into exponential wisdom here. The things that we can do now that were not possible before is you can actually test whether the marketplace wants your product. You can throw up a website with a description of your product and a price point. In fact, you can throw up 10 websites mm -hmm. with 10 different descriptions or 10 different price and points. And 10 price points, yeah. And you can tweet it out, and you can buy Facebook ads and Google ads and actually put in a place there where people have to put in their credit card number. Don't ever do it without that. Then you can, at the end of the data, you can see which one took more orders. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can refund the money saying, I'm sorry, the product's not going to be ready yet, but we'll contact you when it is. But you get real-life data. And you know how much you spent on those ads, and you know what the margin is on the product, and you can determine whether or not that is worthwhile doing. So how long did it take you to do that? A couple of days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the other thing we know from crowdfunding that people will pay money just to be part of a creative process. Absolutely. So you've got Kickstarter, you've got Indiegogo. Yeah. They've changed a little bit because in the past, you could throw up an idea. Now they've gotten, because there have been so many failed campaigns because people threw up an idea, got the money, and never able to implement. You need to be a little bit more advanced like that. But yeah. you can also begin to prototype with a 3D printer much faster. I mean, you can come up with an idea, 3D print it, take some images, throw up a website, and start collecting revenue, and then manufacture in the back end. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example. Quite a different world, but next week, Babs and I are going to New York. It's the first preview of a Broadway musical by a friend of ours in New York. He announced it last April that he was doing this. I said, look, I'll pay for all the coffee in the first year. He says, well, here's the price of the coffee. And he said, look, he said, you're my friends. He said, this is a very risky business that you're doing. And I said, I'm not doing it for a financial return. I just want to be part of the process of creating a Broadway musical. So I think in today's world, a lot of people, just part of their education, their self-education that we've talked about previously, or their self-entertainment, if you will, they will willingly give money to be part of the creative process of a new venture of some sort or another. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. They have a test where they've asked on uh, tickets in the upscale area of New York City, here's two free tickets to the Metropolitan Opera. Mm -hmm. 
Or you can have two tickets to a dress rehearsal of the Metropolitan Opera, and it's 50-50 takers. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. People have a tremendous love for being backstage to a creative process. Sure, to be in the authentic milieu of that. Yeah. I'm thinking about the criteria I have for killing a company when I've killed it. I think when the idea has gotten perverted, in other words, I'm not passionate about it anymore. If I'm not passionate about it, then I'm willing to work my butt off if it's something I love and I'm learning and I'm excited about it. But if that passion is gone and I'm doing it out of obligation, then killing a company must be an option, though you're also taking on responsibilities, right? Because I've taken in investor money and such. So this is where you have to be careful. I mean, the reason people keep companies going way longer than they should is that they have taken in a huge amount of money and they've invested a lot of time and a lot of reputation. And at the end of the day, God, I can't kill a company. I've taken $10 million of investor capital. I'm in it for two years. My reputation's on the line and so forth. And they keep going. And other people have committed their work lives to being part of your project. Yeah, they've moved and so forth. So interestingly enough, Astro Teller, who you've met through Abundance 360, he comes to A360 as one of our teachers and faculty every couple of years. He runs what was called Google X and is now called X under Alphabet. And it's interesting, they have a process of very early mortality that they're proud of. So just to share it with people, our friends listening, Google and now Alphabet will start or acquire literally thousands of companies per year. But the majority of them are killed because if you equally support all the ideas, then you're not differentially supporting the best ideas. Yes. And so Astro Teller has a program where they meet every Friday all of the companies under the X umbrella, and he'll ask, is there any of the teams here that want to kill their company today? And they will have, I don't know how frequently, one, two, three a week, whatever it might be, who will stand up and say, yes, we've decided we're going to kill our company. And rather than being depressed, what happens is everybody in the room stands up and wallops and cheers and goes, fantastic, yay, congratulations, (laughs) you're killing your startup. And the realization is uh, that the reason that that level of excitement is happening is because in so doing, you are freeing up all of that cognitive capacity and all the money to now work on something that has a better chance of succeeding and say, well, how do people decide they want to kill it? Well, one of the tools they have is what they call a pre-mortem, which is to say, if a year from now we were to look back and say, this company will have died a year from now, why would it have died? Come up with all the reasons that it might have died. That's a great question. And if you list them and then you say, you know, there are a lot of good reasons why this is likely to die, then you might want to kill your company at that point. Yeah, it's very interesting. But the other thing I was just thinking, among all the companies, there's a collective increase in understanding of what a killable company looks like. Yeah, true. You're learning as a group. Yeah, yeah. So I think to our entrepreneurs who are listening, if you're no longer in love with your company and it doesn't capture your shower time, which is my sort of moniker for this, yeah, And if you're doing it out of obligation, and if your time, your energy, your passion is better used someplace else, then it's 
time to consider turning over the reins to somebody else, selling the company, or even killing the company, giving your investors a tax write-off versus just yep. bringing in more money after bad. Yeah. And I would say that most companies that die, die many years after they should have been killed. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the difference between government and uh, the private sector is that in government, nothing ever does. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, I mean, killing off a government department, I mean, you think you know a tenacious life form. You've never seen a tenacious life form like a government department that's threatened with death. It'll kill you. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is really, really great, Peter. And that was worth it for the story. You know? <laughs> Someday we'll do a podcast on the crazy part of Peter that would do that all over again. And that'd be an interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the childlike <laughs> desire and playfulness and wonder. Because as an entrepreneur, a lot of it is a game. And you just want to solve the game. Yep. And if you're getting enjoyment and learning out of solving the game, and if you are trailblazing out of solving the game, even if the economics are not there, you can get rewards in multiple other ways. Yep. But if the joy is gone and the economics aren't there, yep. your time has got to be valued. It's one of your most precious resources. Yeah. Peter, thanks a lot. Really terrific. All right, buddy. Love it. Yeah. Love yeah. my time with you. I hope everybody's enjoying our sessions. Appreciate it. We'll see you soon. See you soon. Yes, indeed. Okay, bye. Bye.